Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Jason Vines, author of What Did Jesus Drive? And you're listening to Thursday Night Thunder on the Speedway Digest Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the May 31st edition of Speedway Digest, Thursday Night Thunder, the most hardcore motorsports program on the internet. This is episode 140 of the series. I'm your host, Adam Jason Sinclair, and on tonight's program, we'll be reviewing the Indy 500, Coca-Cola 600, and seeing whatever other motorsports information pops into the conversation. Our first guest this evening is a veteran of the Indy 500, and also has ex- experience in NASCAR, IMSA, and more. Alex Tagliano. He currently competes in the NASCAR Pinty Series, driving the number 1-8 Chevy Camaro ZL1 entry for car owner Scott Steckley, a four-time NASCAR Pinty's champion. Steckley will be introduced into the Canadian Motorsports Hall of Fame, while Tagliani was introduced in the Canadian Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2015. He also competes on an intermittent basis in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, NASCAR Truck Series, IMSA, and the IndyCar Series, as well as other racing series throughout the rest of the world. We are now pleased to welcome Alex Tagliani into the program. Hello, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, very good. You guys? Not too bad, not too bad at all. A little bit of uh, of rain down here in South Florida that just doesn't seem to want to go away. But other than that, not too bad. Yeah, we're not going to complain because we're, we're in Montreal. We, we got a pretty long winter, so even if it's raining, as, as long as the weather comes up, we're pretty happy. There you go. So how did you first get your start in racing? Well, obviously, um, my family, my father, my grandfather, um, you know, they own a mechanic shop, and uh, um, I was just hanging around race cars all the time, and uh, my father was engine builder. He started doing some uh, race cars as well and uh, was providing a service to... um, a small race team in the, in the Porsche Serie in Canada and uh, was following a bunch of race car drivers uh, at racetracks. And, um, you know, following my father and being in that environment, uh, I wanted to, uh, for sure, I wanted to drive, and I was passionate about it. Um, Ten years old, I got my first go-kart in Italy from my grandfather, and um, from that point on, when uh, I returned to Montreal uh, and the go-kart uh, shortly followed me um after uh you know my father and my mom had a a son that wanted to drive and the go-kart was uh, laying in the garage so um and from that point on uh i just find a way to to get involved and you know have a bit of a help from my dad and and uh you know look for sponsors and um yeah and here i am uh-huh. Of all the cars you've raced in, which one has been your favorite? Uh, well, you know, the thing in racing is it's very, very difficult to answer that question because um, the series, the cars are so different. You know, like, uh, uh, you know, if you want to compare, what comes to my mind is, like, obviously the open wheel, from my experience, the Indy car, and... Uh, the enclosed cockpit, you know, the NASCAR. Um, you know, one is lighter, has more downforce, 
The other one is heavier, less downforce, less tires. But if you compare both of them in regards of performance, obviously the IndyCar has more performance. Um, but the, when you drive NASCAR, you don't drive NASCAR against IndyCar. You drive them against other NASCAR. So, um, you know, both are really fun to drive. Both have their particularities and... Um, you know they 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 require like specific and different uh ways of driving they have their challenges so uh, you know it, it, it's tough to compare because you're not comparing on equal terms uh because the series are so different um i think um you know there's uh there's the the advantage also of the pinty series that i really like is is the fact that we're racing on road course street course short ovals um uh, we have multiple different tracks in our in one championship, and I think that's what I like. I like uh, I like more the fact that we're racing on different type of tracks than just uh, you know evaluating the car that you drive. If I would drive an Indy car and it would be only on oval, I would be bored. If I would drive a NASCAR only on oval, I would be bored. So I think the fact that we can race multiple different type of configuration of tracks. That's what makes the Siri or the car that you drive more interesting. We've talked about Mav TV and its racing coverage on this program in the past, and uh, as NASCAR Pinties is currently shown on Mav TV, what differences would our listeners notice with those cars as opposed to the NASCAR counterparts in the United States? Our uh, our cars are lighter by about 500 pounds. Uh, we're not running on radial tires. We're running on a biplay tire, so much harder tire, um, you know, to uh, control the cost uh, in our series. Uh, the the cost of a radial tire is about the double uh, of what we're running. Uh, makes the car slide more, uh, have less grip. The tires are more durable um, than a radial tire, um, but it provides a lot less uh, pace around the lap um, we have a bit of a compensation by the weight of the car being lighter um, and we're also we have less horsepower uh, by you know 150 200 horsepower less um, than the big guys so you know but again the the weight is is a big thing so um, on equal tire um, our car would have pretty much the same amount, the same lap time around a race, a road course um, than an Xfinity car or a Cup car, depending on where where it is. Um, weight and tire grip is sometimes uh, more important than horsepower. With a varied racing resume, which series would you like to drive in that you haven't been in already? Um, I think I would like, like on my bucket list, uh, I would really like to do the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, I've raced the 24 hours of Daytona. Um, it's really a, a nice, a nice, uh, race. Um, I would really love to do the 12 hours of Bathurst, uh, in Australia in a GT car. Um, I think that track is in my opinion, one of the most uh, 
challenging track that exists in the entire world. Uh, it's really fun to drive, and like I said, it's really challenging. It's, uh, it's so rewarding for a driver when you get a lap done. So, yeah, I mean, um, in regards of the series, my interest and my dedication is, you know, towards NASCAR at the moment because of my commitment to my sponsor and my long relationship with them. So I don't see myself uh, committing to full season elsewhere at the moment because, you know, I, I have those uh, long-term long, long commitment. But um, I'm always seeking for uh, one-offs or other types of racing that I can do. And obviously another one on my bucket list would be to compete on a road course in a cup car. So I would really like to do Watkins Glen or Sonoma. Uh, you know, that would be uh, really cool. And what's your next big race? <coughs> Sorry, the next race we have on the schedule is um, uh, Jucasa Speedway. Uh, will be our second race in the in the in the championship. Uh, it's coming here uh, on the 16th of June. Cool. Well, we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show this this evening, and uh, wish you lots of luck in the NASCAR Pinty Series, and hopefully you'll end up in in the 24 Hours of Le Mans sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you. Once again, that was Alex Tagliani, and we'd like to thank him very much for coming, taking time off his busy schedule. He's got a lot going on up there in, uh, in the NASCAR Pinty series, and as we stated, you can find that currently on MAV TV. It isn't a, uh, it isn't a current uh, NASCAR Pinty's season that's being covered on MAV-TV. I believe it's last season they're still working on, but they do have coverage of that series on MAV-TV, so select your, uh, check your local listings and MAV-TV website and see where you can find him on the uh, on the television there. ESPN's live telecast of the Formula One Monaco Grand Prix on Sunday, May 27th, earned F1's largest audience on cable in more than two decades, according to Nielsen Fast National Data. With an average of 809,000 people watching, the telecast was the most viewed at Formula One race on cable since the 1995 Italian Grand Prix, which also aired on ESPN, and averaged 876,000 viewers. Sunday's Monaco Grand Prix aired live at 9.05 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN, and Encore presentation aired on ABC at 3.45 p.m. Sunday afternoon, immediately following their, their Indy 500 coverage. The ABC telecast averaged 1.6 million viewers. Based on fast national data, the combined live and rear telecasts on ESPN and ABC averaged 2.4 million viewers, an increase of 40% over the final combined numbers of the live and rear telecasts that aired on NBC and NBC Sportsnet last season. The Formula One season continues Sunday, June 10th, with the Canadian Grand Prix live on ABC at 2 p.m. Everyone knows that, unfortunately, James Hinchcliffe wasn't able to qualify for the Indy 500 this season. So let's go ahead and take a look back at an interview we had with James Hinchcliffe last year. First off, congratulations on your return to IndyCar racing. How did it feel to get back in the car after your accident? I mean, you know, obviously that was, uh, that was the entire reason, you know, I, I went through everything I did was to get back in the car for the last months have been working towards so for uh for me it was great to be able to, to get back to the track with everybody and uh you know and, and get those competitive juices flowing again so it was it was a very very exciting weekend for sure 
What are you most looking forward to next weekend in Long Beach? Oh, next weekend's Phoenix. Next weekend's Phoenix, okay. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's getting back to oval racing, obviously, so it's uh, something that I haven't haven't done in a while. And uh, we had a pretty good test there, um, you know, a few weeks ago. And it's just it's just about, again, getting back to that style of racing because it's, uh, it's very different, obviously, for street course racing. And it's uh, one of the best parts about IndyCar racing in general is that we get to go to all these different kinds of tracks. And so it's just going to be exciting to get back to, uh, to that type of track. Do you think the new aero package modifications made in the car will help you make help you be more competitive this season? No doubt. You know, Honda has put a lot of work into the car in the off season. You know, both the, uh, the aero kit and the engine, and um, there's no doubt that the gap's a lot closer than it was to our competitors. You know, it really puts us back in the race, and we saw that in St. Pete, and hopefully we see that again in Phoenix and carry out to the rest of the year. And, We'll slowly try and make the cars better and better, and uh, try and try and pull out front of uh, out front of the competitors. Growing up, who was your favorite driver? Uh, Greg Moore was my favorite guy growing up. And why is that? Well, you know, he was Canadian, and um, he uh, he kind of got into Indy car racing right as I was getting into go karting, and so the uh, the timing of it all was was, was pretty uh, convenient. And, you know, on top of that, he was a hell of a great racing driver. He was, he seemed like to be, he seemed to be a great guy. You know, so as a young kid who was just getting into the sport, it made it really easy to sort of follow him and, uh, and idolize him. It's been several years now since Firestone became the sole tire provider in IndyCar. Do you think they've done a good job in that role? And what improvements still need to be made, in your opinion? Honestly, Firestone, I think, is one of the strongest partners that IndyCar's had, you know, over the last, uh, I mean, several decades. You know, they, they, they go back to the very beginning of racing at the Speedway, and they've been uh, a dominant force in the tire in the tire category for a long time. And, you know, what we do going racing on ovals at 230 miles an hour is very unique in motorsports. And, you know, I don't think any tire company uh, is quite as accomplished and does quite as good a job as Firestone does in that arena. So for us, you know, as IndyCar drivers, we're incredibly lucky to have a partner like them, and uh, we think they're doing a great job. How do you feel about the push-to-pass technology? Do you think it's been overused, or what's your opinion about it? Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, I think push-to-pass is a, is a great tool. You know, it, it certainly doesn't make passing easy. It, it's, not, uh, it's not that at all. It just it kind of makes those... You know, maybe moments a little bit, uh, a little bit less questionable, which I think makes the racing better. You know, and everybody's given the same amount, and you know, there's some strategy as to how you use it. So, you know, for me, I, I find it, uh, I find it a fairer tool than say DRS, like Formula One uses. Um, that's proximity based. This one, like I said, there's some strategy involved to when you use it and when you don't. To use it to attack, to use it to defend, and uh, I think it's a, it's a cool added element. Many of your compatriots in the IndyCar paddock have competed in at least one event in the FIA Formula E series in the past year. Will you be seeing you in any FIA Formula E races in the future? Uh, I mean, I'm open to driving anything if I get the call. It's, uh, you know, it's something we toyed with uh, when I was still driving for Michael, but um, there are no, no immediate plans, but uh, that's not to say that if there was an opportunity, I wouldn't take it. And speaking of you making the call, I know you you raced in the uh, Rolex 24 last season. Do you have any plans in competing in that next year? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, 
I, I took this year off just because of, uh, you know, the focus to return to IndyCar and, and making sure my fitness was where I needed to be for that and, and everything along that line. But uh, it's a race that I really enjoy running, and hopefully I can be back on that grid next year. What track are you most looking forward to in the 2016 schedule? Well, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm like, super excited to go back to Road America. Um, you know, Indy obviously is his own deal, and of course I'm looking forward to going back to Toronto, but, you know, Road America's been my favorite road course, you know, in America for years, and so uh, getting the opportunity to go back uh, in IndyCar and, and get to race there is, uh, is something I'm really excited about. Well, we thank you very much for t- talking to us today and wish you lots of luck in the IndyCar season throughout the rest of the year. All right, sir. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Jason Alder from AB Motorsports, and you're listening to the Thursday Night Thunder on the Speedway Digest Radio Network.
We are now pleased to welcome Patrick Forster to the program. Hello, Hello. how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, first off, how'd you get interested in automobiles? You know, I've always uh, been interested, I think, in automobiles since I was a teenager. But, you know, in a, in, in a general way, the way most teenage boys are. Uh, at some point, I started reading a magazine, um, Special Interest Autos, years ago. And it was so fascinating because it told the history of old cars. And that, that got me hooked. And I thought, you know, it would be a, it must be great to be able to write for a magazine like that. And um, within, you know, about 10 years, I actually was one of their writers. Of all the cars you've written about, which one has been your favorite? I would have to say American Motors. And that's been probably the favorite topic of my life. Uh, American Motors Corporation was so much different from the big three makes. And it was different even from the other American, you know, small American independent makes. It was America's last independent automobile maker, and it was the most successful one. And it, it introduced just so many great innovations, uh, safety things like unibody construction and dual circuit brakes, and uh, fun things like the AMC Gremlin and the Pacer and the Levi's interiors and things like that. Just It was just a, a, a really neat car company. And over the years, I've gotten to uh, know a lot of people that work there, and they're they're pretty terrific people. They you know they had this uh, this mentality of uh, uh, sort of David against Goliath. You know, we're a small company, but we can compete. And for many many years, they did from 1902 to 1988 they were a very competitive and very influential automaker so i wrote a book some years ago called uh oh actually it's only been about three years american motors corporation the rise and fall of america's last independent automaker and that i think is is my favorite work i've, I've written 24 automobile books and that's my favorite how do you feel about the room Chrysler meeting where the it's rumored that Chrysler brand may cease to exist, Fiat might leave the U.S. market again, and Aston Martin may also disappear into automotive history. That's you know that's an awful lot of stuff to to digest, but uh, I've heard the rumors and I called up some fellow journalists who are in the Detroit area, and uh, including some that are very close to Fiat Chrysler. I've got friends that work for Fiat Chrysler too, and. Uh, it seems like that's you know what they're saying. They're they're eventually going to discontinue the Chrysler brand. Nobody is quite sure what the timeline is going to be, but I would say, um, you know, three to five years uh, is probably going to be what the announcement is. And then they they're they're talking about uh, they're they're going to uh, discontinue Fiat in the United States. Now, what that's going to do for the brand name of the company, Fiat Chrysler? If you drop Fiat and you drop Chrysler. It, it's going to, I don't know what they're going to do if they're just going to call it Dodge Jeep or Jeep Dodge, but uh, I think it's a mistake. I don't know uh, your your feelings on that, but I think it's a, a huge mistake. They're betting the farm on Jeep, which has been a good bet for a long, long time. But sooner or later, I think people are going to get tired of SUVs and look for something else. And if you don't have passenger cars in your lineup, where are they going to go to? Yeah, I, I worry about it. I think it's a mistake. 
And they're definitely not going to go to Ford because Ford's doing the same sort of thing. All they're going to have is the but the one little teeny Focus and then all the other SUVs in their line. Yeah, yeah, they're doing exactly the same thing. I think in the case of Fiat Chrysler, uh, Sergio Marchionne, I think, who, who I've met several times, I think he's started to believe all the stories that say that he's a genius. And he's been a good businessman for a lot of years, but he's not a genius. You know, Michelangelo's a genius. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, a genius. Sergio Marchionne is a human being, and, and I think this is going to go down as a mistake. Now, he's leaving the company soon, uh, so he won't have to, uh, you know, you know, pay for the uh, error if that's what it's going to be. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be a fundamental change in the market uh, for the next three to five years. But sooner or later, I don't know how you feel about SUVs, but I'm getting a little tired of them myself. I drive uh, a, a Jeep myself. And uh, I, you know, I think the next time I buy a car, it's going to be a passenger car. Hmm. I think Jeep. Oh, what are your opinions of the the news that's breaking on the internet now about the fact that Trump might be uh, might be trying to block some of the imports of German cars into the United States? Yeah, I have mixed feelings on that. I'm I'm a free market person too, but um, you know there are artificial trade barriers, and uh, what I dislike uh, in particular about of the German automobile companies is when NAFTA went through, uh, they took advantage of it by moving a lot of new factories into Mexico rather than the United States. And Mexico mm -hmm. right now has enough production capacity for about eight times what their own market can absorb. And you know why the factories are there. They're there to feed the United States. And uh, it's it's wrong. I mean, you should be building cars where your customers are and they're building them where the lowest cost basis is, which, you know, if I was a businessman, I would probably do the same thing, but, uh, uh, it, it is, it is a wrong thing. It's, it, it doesn't show good faith with your, you know, with the United States, mm -hmm. my opinion. And can you tell us a little bit, a bit about your next book that you're working on now? Well, you know, I'm a idiot. Um, what I did, and uh, they're probably going to be surprised to hear about this, I signed agreements with two publishers to write two books this year. One is A Thousand and One Facts About Jeep, which is going to actually be my fifth book about Jeep, but this one is completely different from all the others. And um, the other one is uh, Lost Car Companies of America. And what that is going to be is about uh, – American, the small American independent car companies that sprung up between 1939 and 1979. And uh, so it's it'll have American Motors in there, but there'll be a lot of other ones like Avanti Motors and Checker Cab Company. And uh, we'll, we'll profile each one. It's not going to be a, a gigantic history of each company because we want to fit as many car companies in there as we can. But I, I think it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun for people. I think they're going to enjoy it. And uh, the Jeep book, you know, people always there's always a big market for new books about Jeep. And uh, I, I I know the Jeep buyer, I know the the Jeep enthusiast, and I think they'll like this one as well. It's just uh, uh, I feel a little, on the show a little odd writing so many books about Jeep, but you know that's, that's what people want. Yeah, <laughs> and it seems like Jeep is what's what's still selling, and that uh, hopefully it you never know how the how the market goes, but at least right now that's how the that's what people seem like they're interested in. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's it's uh, interesting that Jeep has saved so many car companies over the years. They they saved Kaiser Fraser. You know, Kaiser Fraser bought Jeep just to save their car company because their their passenger car line was collapsing. Mm-hmm. And uh and then American Motors bought Jeep and that ended up saving American Motors for a long time and it was really the only thing that anybody wanted to buy when when American Motors was sold. And then <clears throat> Chrysler bought it, and it saved Chrysler for a great many years. And now it's saving uh, Fiat. And a lot of people don't realize, but uh, if it wasn't for Jeep, I don't know how long Fiat would be able to stand on its own uh, because they were heavily dependent on profits from from Jeep. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show this evening, and hopefully your books sell pretty well, and maybe we'll have you back on in the future to talk about your next project. I hope you do. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you. Have a nice evening. Bye-bye. You too. Once again, that was Patrick Forster. Let's go ahead and re- reread his profile because I believe we had a little bit of a dead air problem there for a few minutes. As one of America's best-known automotive journalists, Forster is a decade historian author who has been writing for more than 25 years. Forster is a feature writer and also has regular columns in Hemming's Classic Car and Old Cars Weekly. He has written 24 books and contributed material to several others. Forster has won numerous writing awards, including the AA Thomas McKean Memorial Cup Award for the Best Book of Automotive History for 1998. In 1997, one of his works was named Outstanding Periodical Article for the Year by the Society of Automotive Historians. In 2011, Forster was hired once again with the Getty Guy Coco Award, perhaps the most coveted award in the car hobby, for excellence in automotive writing. The 2015 International Automotive Media Council Awards saw him bring home bronze, rather, saw him bring home a silver medal for an article in the 1930 through 1934 Nash Automobiles, and a bronze medal, I knew there was a bronze in there somewhere, for his book, Jeep, The History of America's Greatest Vehicle. In 2016, Forster took home two awards from the IAMC event when International Harvester Trucks, The Complete History, won a silver medal, and Arkel and George Romney was awarded a bronze. The year 2017 brought more awards. Forster was awarded with a trophy for Best Book of Automotive History for that year for his Airstream Award America's World Traveler. That book was also awarded a gold medal in its category. His book, Willie's Overland Illustrated History, also was awarded a gold medal. Forster's latest books, as you talked about briefly, include George Romney in American Life and Packard in Illustrated History. As he also stated, he's currently writing a new book on Jeep and a book on America's independent automakers. <clears throat> Again, we'd like to thank Patrick Forster for coming up this evening. <coughs> Be sure to catch the Author Spotlight series on Palm Beach Happening. go ahead and take another quick break here while I'm having a little bit of a coughing issue and listen to Speedway Lady from Ron Pastana and the pit crew.
Again, that was Speedway Lady by Rod Pastana and the Pit Crew. Again, you can find them on by searching online for Rod Pastana and the Pit Crew. Those things to be downloaded all over the internet. As Will Power was about to finish off the biggest win of his racing career at the 102nd Indianapolis 500, presented by Penn Grade Motor Oil, he couldn't resist letting his emotions flow. Power won the greatest spectrum in racing by 3.1589 seconds to etch his name into the Indianapolis 500 history. It made him the first Australian winner of the race and the first driver to sweep both the Verizon IndyCar Series race at the Indianapolis Mars Speedway in the same year. He also piloted the number 12 Verizon Team Penske Chevrolet Victory Lane in the IndyCar Grand Prix on the road course on May the 12th. Power led 59 of 200 laps Sunday and outlasted a trio of competitors, Oriel Serbia, Stefan Wilson, and Jack Harvey, who unsuccessfully tried to, to stretch fuel loads to the finish. Running fourth on the final restart from a caution period with seven laps to go, Power quickly passed Serbia and then delayed watching as Wilson and Harvey both had to stop for splashes of ethanol with four laps remaining. 
Power's first Indy 500 win was also the 34th victory of his 14-year IndyCar career, tying the 37-year-old with Alan Jr. for eighth place on list. It also marked the 17th Indy 500, for t- Indy 500 win for Team Penske and the 201st IndyCar triumph for the storied team, both records. Pulsar Ed Carpenter led a race high 65 laps before finishing in the number 20 Ed Carpenter Racing Fuzzies Vodka Chevrolet. It's Carpenter's best Indy 500 result in 15 starts. Chip Ganassi Racing Scott Dixon led the trio of past Indy 500 winners who finished third through fifth, followed by Andre Autosport teammates Alexander Rossi in fourth place and Ryan Hunter Ray in fifth place. The race tied the record established a year ago for the most drivers to lead the event at 15. Seven cautions slowed the pace for 41 laps. All but the first re- resulted from single car incidents. Defending Indy 500 champion Takuma Sato ran into the back of slower James Davison to bring out the first yellow on lap 48. Several veterans found conditions treacherous in a race that was nearly the hottest Indy 500 on record. The official high temperature at nearby Indianapolis International Airport, 91 degrees Fahrenheit, was a single degree shy of the record set in 1937. Ed Jones crashed in the turn two safer barrier on lap 58 in the number 10 NTT Data Honda. The Chip Ganassi racing driver complained of head and neck pain and was transferred to IU Health Methodist Hospital, where he was examined and released. Jones will be re-examined by IndyCar medical officials before being cleared for the next race. Danica Patrick, in the last of her last race of her groundbreaking career, spun and crashed in the number 13 GoDaddy Chevrolet exiting turn two on lap 68. That's sort of a fitting end to her career as she's she's never had excellent results in Indianapolis and her her uh, crash and burn thing at the uh, Daytona 500 earlier in the season sort of sets the stage for the, the end of her up-and-down career. Four-time IndyCar champion Sebastian Bourdais had his race come to an end early when he crashed on turn four on lap 139. The same thing happened to three-time Indy 500 winner Helio Castroneves on lap 146. Tony Kanaan, the 2013 Indy 500 winner, crashed in turn two on lap 189, bringing out the final caution to set up Power's drive to victory. With the Indy 500 paying double race points, Power vaulted to the championship lead after six of 17 races this season. He leads Rosie by two points, reigning Verizon IndyCar Series champion Joseph Newgarden by 10 points, and Scott Dixon by 25. The Verizon IndyCar Series is back in action this weekend at the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix, presented by Lear, which is held on the track at Belle Isle. The only double-header weekend on the schedule. Races are scheduled for Saturday, June 2nd, and Sunday, June 3rd, with each airing at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time on ABC, as well as the Advanced Auto Parts IndyCar Racing Radio Network. Our next guest this evening, and our final guest of the night, is Luke Rakowski of Rakowski Family Racing. Rakowski Family Racing started out five years ago, racing lawnmowers in the Capital District area of New York. In two years of operating full-time and two years of part-time operation in lawnmower racing, two classes with a 96% podium finish rate and a nearly 75% win ratio. 2018, rather, saw team owner Luke Rakowski decide to refresh, refocus, rebrand with a new name, new logo, and a new form of racing. Now, we're pleased to welcome Luke Rakowski back into the Thunderdome after his short absence. Hey, Adam. Hello, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, how about yourself? Not too bad. 
So first off, can you tell us why you decided to change from lawnmower racing into adult wing champ cart for this year? Um, uh, that's a few different reasons. Um, mainly, I wanted to challenge, personally, I wanted to challenge myself. Um, the wing champ class um, has seen a huge resurgence in the area and, frankly, in the Northeast. The series that we're racing in this, uh, this season is being uh, titled the fastest growing racing series in the Northeast and has doubled in size in two years with tracks and cart counts. And I felt personally um, I had accomplished everything I wanted to do locally in the lawnmower racing scene. And I wanted to, to challenge myself um, in, in much better competition and a, just a completely different um, form of motorsport. And plus um, my son wanted to get uh, into racing um, and I didn't see any any future there's not much uh growth kid in the lawnmower ranks getting to it as an adult it's a little easier to do and uh there's a track close by so kind of the best of both worlds you know i get to race with my son and we both get to learn at the same time and grow to grow together what's it like watching your son uh, six-year-old aaron rakowski compete on a as your teammate this year <laughs> Nerve-wracking. <laughs> um, the the first time he was on the track, I was uh, I, I was a nervous wreck. You know, um, not not that I didn't have any uh, doubts in his ability to drive or or anything like that. I just think it's the parent thing. You know, out there racing for the first time, and it's just it's all nerves. I'm far more nervous than when I'm <laughs> personally out there driving. But it's been it's it's been it's been a real treat and a real it's something special. It really is watching your, your son out there. Um, you know, it was son or daughter, you know, in my case, son, uh, this year doing, uh, something that he likes to do that you're involved in. It's, it's really special going to the track with your kids and, and being there as a, as a family unit. It's, it's very cool. And with my dad still being involved, you know, now you have three generations, you know, at the racetrack, you know, competing and being involved. It's really it's really, it's really cool. How many events do you plan on competing in this year? Um, I am the schedule for the traveling series. There are eight point races um, throughout New York and Pennsylvania. So I, I'm committed to that with um, occasional special events as they pop up. Um, I'm probably going to plan for probably 12 races, I think overall, just for myself. Um, Aaron is racing. We're going to race him part-time this year just to get his feet wet, um, get him track time and more used to it. So there's no pressure of competing for points. This is his first year racing ever. Um, and the, the schedule for the local track where we race at, they have about 24 races. So if we make, you know, half of those with him, so roughly I would say probably 12, 25, maybe total races between the two of us. You know, if I wanted to say a ballpark figure, it's not really, Aside from the series, it's kind of just play it by ear um, with Aaron, you know, see how the week goes and, and go to the track. And But so far, he's been phenomenal. I can be prouder of how he's done. Where do you see yourself in five years? That is a good question. Um, if, there's, if there's anything, if the trend continues, um, I will be out of the seat <laughs> because um, – 
because uh, Aaron has shown uh, tremendous promise already in just two races. I'm blown away by how well he's done. Um, our oldest daughter wants to get behind the wheel and give it a shot. So in five years, um, in five years, if I had everything go the way I wanted it to, we'd all still be, we'd all be racing. Um, we'd all be in the champ cart class, you know, whatever the, the kids class. And, and we'd all, um, we have a, a legit, you know, racing program going on that we could develop, you know, the kids and move them on up and in the cars and everything like that. That's where I'd like to be in five years. Um, so that, that would be the goal is to get a, a firm base and build upon something that the kids can, that can springboard on into, uh, into a, hopefully maybe a racing career. Cool. We look forward to following your career. We've had fun, uh, fun following around on Twitter and all that lately. And hopefully you have a, a great season and you, the, uh, you and your kids end up with the next big thing in auto racing. <laughs> well, I thank you for uh, reaching out and having me on again. It was, uh, it was fun the last time and it was fun this time. I appreciate it. Well, well thank you very much and, and have a great evening and a, a great rest of the week. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you. Once again, that was Luke Rakowski, who's a, a local racer in New York. Uh, you can follow him by looking up Rakowski Family Racing. That's R-A-K-O-S-K-E, Family Racing. Are you a race car driver, crew chief, pit member, track owner? Maybe you're just a huge fan of the sport. Either Michael Mullally or myself to get your spot on the show. After all, you deserve your 15 minutes of fame, and we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to check out past episodes of Thursday Night Thunder, as well as the other shows on the Speedway Digest Radio at speedwaydigestradionetwork.com. You can also check out the show on Facebook by searching for Speedway Digest Thursday Night Thunder in the search bar. You can also find us on YouTube now. So be Not on YouTube, on iTunes, excuse me. So be sure to check that out as well. I also invite you to read all the articles covering all aspects of motorsports at speedwaydigest.com. It has been a busy, busy weekend in racing, so be sure to check that out. In addition, if you're a fan of South Florida and who isn't, be sure to check out the latest news and information about our slice of paradise at Palm Beach Happening, which we found by visiting palmbeach.happeningmag.com. As I stated earlier, we're doing that author profile series on Palm Beach Happening. We haven't been doing a bunch of those this week, but we do have a bunch lined up for the future. We also have some awesome reviews of restaurants and that sort of thing. Uh, we had a great dinner last night at MIA Kitchen Bar, which, we, which you can find by searching for us on Twitter at twitter.com slash pbhappening. I have a bunch of pictures of all the stuff we had, the great stuff there last night, including the drinks, which include the uh, information about and the food also has what's involved in the dishes there. So be sure to check us out on Twitter as well. Thank you for listening. And we should look forward to seeing you again next week in the Thunderdome as we discuss the major issues in the world of modern auto racing. We currently don't have a true idea of how many people of what our guest list is going to be next week. I know we do have another author scheduled for for next Thursday, the seventh of June. Can you believe it's already going to be June tomorrow? So it'll be pretty awesome to have a, and be sure to check it out on the Facebook.com slash SD Thursday Night Thunder where we post information about who's going to be on the show. We also post it on Twitter at twitter.com slash Vaborplums. That's twitter.com slash F-A-B-O-R-P-L-U-M-B-S. Be sure to check us out there. And we thank you again for listening. We apologize for a little bit of technical issue. 
of the show before the Patrick Forster interview. But every time we have a little bit of an issue and hopefully everything works out in the end. Thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. <laughs>